Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Would you, would you like to explain your paniculae? Yeah, my condition. I got in the car to drive here to start recording. I was like, oh, my eye just feels so dry and like irritated. And I looked in my car mirror and there's just like yellow bump like next to my cornea on my eyeball. And I was like, what is that? That's scary. Googled it. And it is what we like to call... <clears throat> <laughs> Pinguicule. <laughs> That's my attempt. We'd like to say it's up for interpretation. So if anyone does know how to pronounce this medical term, please. I wonder if like Google can tell us. How do you say? Oh, here. Pinguicula. Oh <laughs> it's pinguicula, which is essentially when it sounds kind of scary, which I was very scared at first, but then they said it's like literally from dust and wind. So... And then it goes away on its own. So I'm going to be okay, everyone. Don't worry. But it's just like a fun little vocab moment, I guess. I mean, like, honestly, I'm just, like, impressed that you, like, know what your cornea is because I don't. So. I didn't know what my cornea was until I read this article about pinguicula. If anyone has any, like, wacky WebMD lookups and bizarre conditions with funky pronunciations, like, please, like, hit us up. We love a Grey's Anatomy moment, you know? I actually never watched Grey's. I think it's one of the best shows on TV. They just draw you in. Like, it's so addicting to watch. That's how I feel about Schitt's Creek. I love Schitt's Creek. I think it's so funny. 
it's just kind of like one of those background tv shows like the office or something for me well like i am alexis so is my roommate my roommate got an ew david sweatshirt stop i need that that is brilliant because honestly like sometimes i like feel like my personality is both like david and alexis like if they were one person like that would be me i love it but there is like a piece of good news that arrived today that i wanted to share as part of another good news segment because like what is 2021 if you know not just full of good news that's what i'm telling myself at least but the good news literally i think actually right before i left to come record this with you sam joe biden tweeted that the country will have enough vaccine supply for every adult in america by the end of may which is advancing the expected timeline by two months. So it was expected like maybe July, but now they expect the supply for an entirely vaccinated country by May, which is crazy, but like great news. And things are opening up here in California. We got movie theaters opening this week. That's cool. People still go to those? Oh my God, I, I don't, but my parents like are obsessed. They're gonna be so excited. That's a good point. My parents do love it now that I think about it. But yeah, that's good news. And I think the corona news has gotten a lot better. And we'll get into some more of that news later. But our guest today, Greg Nassif, he is the press secretary for Humanity Forward, nonprofit organization that Andrew Yang actually started with kind of the main mission to push for universal basic income, which we will talk about today. But, you know, if you liked Andrew Yang in the presidential primaries, like this is a lot of what he was pushing. Now he's running for New York City mayor. So interesting stuff. And I think a very pertinent topic right now, especially as we are getting closer to this new stimulus package, because it's all kind of interrelated and Direct cash relief and all that stuff is what we're looking at right now and what your stimmies are. Yay, stimmies! So now you get to learn about those. So here is Greg to tell us all about his political journey and all about universal basic income. Quick commercial break. Are your headphones uncomfortable, dull sounding, and die quickly? Because you need to check out Soul. Their headphones and earphones are built with the latest technology for power, clarity, and comfort. Soul provides a soundtrack to your life to help you keep going. From commuting to hitting the gym, Soul vibes with your daily grind by ensuring you get the highest quality with the best value. With Soul headphones like the S-Fit, the set of the secure and comfortable wing-shaped locks ensure to stay in your ears you can get 33 hours, yes, 33 hours of charge. So ditch your current headphones and switch to Soul's colorful, they even have pink, and comfortable headphones. Use discount girl and the gov to get 10% off your purchase at soulnation.com. That code again is girl and the gov in all caps. Well, I haven't always been in the political space. I've always been interested in it, but four years ago I was teaching English in Japan and I was a little disturbed by the the way events were unfolding here in the United States. So I, I came home and I got involved and I started as an on-the-ground organizer knocking on doors. And I was always a, interested in communications. So uh, 2020 kind of sh- uh, changed things, accelerated things, and that included, I guess, how campaigns evolved. So I, I got into campaign communications. And this year I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to join Humanity Forward as Chief Spokesman, or I guess 
exclusively last year. I, we've lost track of time. Time is an illusion at this point. <laughs> it really is. It's still March 2020, I think. Yeah, 100%. It's fine, but not to like totally dive into this like pandemic stuff. Of course, like your new role, press secretary, chief spokesman, humanity forward, all good things. But can you tell us a little bit more about A, that role and B, what humanity forward is, what the mission is? Just give us the lay of the land. Sure. Humanity forward is a nonprofit advocacy organization. And we are the voice for the American people in Washington. And the reason I say that is in Washington, there are lobbying empires. There, there are lobbies for everything you can imagine, for good and bad. You know, there's a lot of industry lobbying, corporate lobbying. There's lobbying for unions. There's special interest lobbying. And that can be, you know, you know fixations on certain business regulations. It can also be environmental nonprofits. And, and they all have interest groups that, that support them. And it, it can be folks who care about certain issues. It can be corporate clients, you know, other examples like that. Humanity Forward is the advocate for the entirety of the American people, specifically focusing on their economic needs. So we focus on solutions to the 21st century's biggest problems, and we are laser focused on direct cash relief this year to make sure that uh, folks have everything they need to get through this crisis and beyond. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of, too, just the foundation of Humanity Forward and its original mission, how it got started, like how it continues to manifest in different ways? Well, I think like a lot of groups or like a lot of things, Humanity Forward evolved a lot in 2020. It was actually founded in 2020 by former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. And initially it was a non, it was purely, it was more charity focused, uh, entirely focus on UBI pilots. There are a number of UBI pilots that it began in. Okay, well, you guys, quick explainer. A UBI pilot, think about pilot as in like a pilot episode of a show, like the first show, see if people like it. So it's UBI pilot is a trial program where universal basic income is tested in different places, different countries to see if it works, to see if it should be implemented. And then universal basic income, you guys, we will get all into it with Greg in just a few moments. There was a concentration in the Bronx, I believe. And this is great because it uh, opens up long-term studies for the benefits of universal basic income. And there were you know, they helped a lot of people, especially as the pandemic ravaged the economy. It gave a lot of folks a lifeline. But seeing how that benefited people who had lost everything, who needed that lifeline, you know, folks at Humanity Forward realized that this, it was not enough to simply try to be a charity for a small sliver of the population. You know, we, this is something that needed to be uh, a part of U.S. policy. So they got involved in some political campaigns in the fall. We had a political action committee endorse a number of candidates. But we find that what we're doing now is most effective, which is working in Washington, building bipartisan coalitions to advance direct cash relief as a policy for everybody who needs it. And we've already seen some success with that. Uh, in December, there was finally, it looked like we were going to get a second COVID relief package. We know how that ended, of course. We, uh, a bill passed in late December with $600 direct cash relief checks to most Americans. And $600 obviously was not enough, especially after nine months of nothing. But the, it was, it's better than nothing. And it was only possible because 
of the bipartisan coalition uh, of uh, House House members and senators who who made their support known for direct cash relief. That coalition included 12 Republicans and 12 Democrats who in early December introduced the bill. It's H.R. 8893, and it, I believe it was called the Coronavirus Assistance for American Families Act. Would have given $1,000 to, to every uh, American family and $1,000 for their dependents as well. And the, uh, the co-sponsor, or the lead sponsors of that were uh, a Democrat, Lisa Blunt Rochester from Delaware, and a Republican, David McKinley from West Virginia. And they don't share a lot in common, but they did see uh, together that putting cash in the hands of people who need it is the best way to help them through this crisis. And now that bill didn't pass, but it did signal to congressional leadership that there was bipartisan support for this issue. And that is how direct cash relief uh, was able to make it into the final bill. Um, and we're excited that there's momentum for more relief and we're, we're continuing to push for that. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a hot topic and has been, obviously. So, I mean, we definitely want to move forward into our I Have a Stupid Question segment because for those who don't know, we want to kind of get into what universal basic income is, kind of what cash relief is, things like that. So to start, for those who don't know, like what is universal basic income? And I love asking stupid questions. So (laughs) I think the segment's for me. I think the best way to look at universal basic income is it's society investing in itself. It is saying that, you know, everybody has value and everybody has the potential to contribute to our society. Now, the, the concept I think sometimes that is put on it is that you're paying people to do nothing. But that's actually more of a concept of uh, you know, certain welfare programs where you can only receive support if you are not working. Universal basic income gives everybody an income floor. So it varies based on different proposals, but one concept would be you know everybody receiving uh, Check every adult receiving a check of say a thousand dollars a month for every month for uh, the entirety of their life, and and they can receive a smaller amount or the same amount per dependent. There's different proposals out there, but with that boost, it ensures that folks will always have something to get started with, that they can invest in their education, that if they're if they lose their job, they have a small lifeline to look for the next opportunity to retrain themselves, to advance with the changing economy. And it also says that it also gives folks the opportunity to, to relocate, to invest in their own communities. And it offers, at least in America's case, a chance to rebuild rural America. Folks in rural communities, they've seen a lot of jobs disappear. Uh, a lot of jobs have gone away to automation. But universal basic income would say, you know, here's a base to, to invest in yourself, to invest in your community, to rebuild, you know, focus on what you're passionate about. And you ask these folks, what would you do with $1,000 a month? It's, you don't really run into folks who say they're not going to work. You run into folks who say that they would, you know, maybe farm full time. They would start a new business. They would practice and, and hone a skill that they've been working on their entire lives. So it's opportunity. 
I think is the simplest way to put it. Yeah. Who pays for universal basic income? Is this a part of sort of our tax structure potentially, or what are the proposals saying? Sure. And there's a lot of ways it could work. In March and uh, at the end of December, the way it worked is the IRS sent checks out to most people. And for those of us who paid our taxes online, it was deposited directly into our bank accounts. Folks, they received a paper check. There's still some folks left behind, and it's, it's good to see the White House working on ways to get money to those remaining folks who estimated about 8 million people. Yeah, I'm one of those. <laughs> uh, there's resources. We've got a, a guide on Humanity Forward's website. Just go right, movehumanityforward.com. We've got a relief guide. You know, there's a lot of ways to get that money and make sure you do get it. So yeah, there's a lot of ways it can work different proposals for how it'd be put together. And the way, you know, we talk about how we're going to pay for it. I wonder, you know, how we're going to pay for not doing it. When you consider the long-term costs of poverty, of uh, healthcare in this country, you know, of education, homelessness, these incur costs in society. But when folks can't invest in themselves, they, you know, those costs pile up onto us. If folks can't pay their medical bills, we end up having to pay for it. And when, and when we talk about giving people their money back, you know, it, it, we only seem to worry about it when it helps people of lower income. You know, we, don't, we don't ask how we're going to pay for it when we give massive tax breaks to folks who don't need it. So you know, that's the more uh, conceptual answer. I guess a more detailed answer would be there is no way to institute a universal basic income in which it, it doesn't ultimately get paid for more by folks who, who, who don't need the, the money. If you look at the past 30 years, productivity in the United States has skyrocketed. But wages have stayed still. Most of that money from the increased productivity has gone to the top 20% of the country. The vast majority gone to the top 1%. And everybody is working harder and making less. So if you wonder what pays for universal basic income, I would say it's that gap between productivity and earnings that has been growing for the past 30, 40 years. And however you institute it, if you do it with a value-added tax, the, you know, the vast majority of that is going to be paid by upper-income people. And if you just you know, let the treasury sprinters go burr, that could theoretically lead to inflation. And then that ultimately, the, the you know, higher-income folks are going to be paying the price for inflation on that. Not that, you know, there's a lot of ways to prevent inflation if you institute a universal basic income. But the important thing is that, you know, how we pay for eliminating poverty, I think is, I, th I think it's a, a false choice. I think it's, it's more expensive to, to leave so much of our population struggle. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I have a question too, just about kind of the... I would say like history of this policy idea of universal basic income. I mean, I first heard of it in the presidential primaries with Andrew Yang proposing it for his candidacy. Did he like kind of coin this policy? What has this kind of been, I guess, in the works for a while? What is kind of the history there of implementing this? It's been around for a long time and it's potentially even a uniquely American idea. Thomas Paine was a supporter of it. A version of universal basic income actually passed the U.S. House in, I think it was the 1970s. There were a thousand economists at the time that wrote support of it, including Milton Friedman. So it's, it's been around as a concept and 
I think the most popular proponent of it is Martin Luther King Jr., who in the last year of his life began to advocate for what he called, a, I believe, a guaranteed minimum income. And he wrote about it extensively in his book. He felt it was one of the final pieces of, for true liberation, a form of security for folks in poverty. So there's no doubt that it's become more popular in the past two years, though. And I think the pandemic has accelerated a lot of the trends that has made it a more popular idea. That's why we're here talking about it today. Yeah, 100%. Well, honestly, I feel like this could have also been like a stupid question. And we covered it a little bit. I mean, aren't like all of our questions like quote unquote stupid, I suppose? We all think they are, but there's no stupid questions. There's no need to judge, you know? (laughs) But we did want to ask about direct cash relief just on its most basic form. Like what is the the layman's terms? Like, what is it? Well, we call it relief because folks are in a pretty desperate situation out there and cash is, a, is one way to help folks. We call it direct because it's going straight from the treasury to the person, to the taxpayer. There's no paperwork to fill out to get your check. There's no qualifying. There's no means testing. Direct cash relief means that money is coming for you either in the mail or a direct deposit into the bank. And it's the simplest form of assistance that you can imagine, cash. And you can decide uh, for yourself how best to to look after yourself and your family throughout this pandemic. I give you like an A plus. I don't know if we're like grading over here, but like if we are, killing it. Okay, so that's like the concept as like, a whole face value, but of course, like for that to happen, policy needs to happen. So in terms of like creating a policy that would allow this, what needs to be implemented? Well, the government has already passed direct cash relief. They did last March, they did in December. So, and and they, there is at least a, a pretty good prospect of more relief coming this year. What we at Humanity Forward would like to see are recurring installments of direct relief. So depending on you know, when a bill emerges from Congress in, in February or March, folks may be receiving, let's say folks get a, a $1,400 check, that's great. But the best way to stimulate the economy would be for folks to know that more relief is coming. Because if you're in a desperate situation and you need to take care of your family, and you get $1,400 from the government, you are going to spend what you need to spend uh, on immediate essentials, but you're not going to spend any more than that, right? Because we're talking about Washington and the, the most of the public has lost confidence that Washington is going to, you know, come up with another relief bill or that they're going to be able to help them further. It's just the nature of our, of polarization now and and the the lack of civic trust. By the way, direct cash relief is a good way to rebuild civic trust because it's something the government can't do. That's a good point. But if if we had recurring installments, let's say an example might be you get 1,400 when this bill is passed and the next two months you get a $500 payment as well at the beginning of each month. And then you can also have something called an automatic stabilizer, which continues those payments at the beginning of the subsequent months. At the beginning of each month, you get another payment. If the economy doesn't meet a certain benchmark of growth, and you know that these 
whiz kids at the treasury can come up with different kinds of benchmarks. It can be the unemployment rate dipping below a certain number. It can be the quarterly growth rate rising to a certain number. And if the economy meets that benchmark, then the checks stop. If the economy does not meet that benchmark, the recovery isn't happening fast enough. Those checks can continue, but you get at least two months guaranteed in that. And what that's going to do is give folks a little bit of consumer confidence. If you know more money is coming, you feel more confident spending a little bit more. And uh, I spent a lot of time in New Jersey. I worked on a program to help replace some of the lead pipes in Newark. A lot of these older cities, they have lead pipes. And, uh, you know, you know the story of Flint, it can, uh, it can cause health issues, especially in kids. And the program that I worked on, uh, it would help folks replace those pipes going into their houses. Now, normally those replacements can cost up to $5,000 or more. This program would pay for 90% of that cost. It was a state program. And my job was to talk to the public about it. And, and part of the offering was, you know, the government, the state government will pay 90% of it. So in, you know, average might be $500 or less. And that smaller amount, you can also divvy up into two years of monthly payments, which would be something like $25 a month. And I would tell this to people, and a lot of them, and these were folks who had lead pipes that it was in public records. And a lot of them, I could see were really thinking about it. And they were thinking, can I afford $25 a month for two years? And I, I really felt for them in that moment where, you know, you have to imagine how tight their budgets are, where even that might be too much. And they, they do have filters provided by the cities. The filters don't last forever. Replacing it can be difficult. And unfortunately, some folks were under the misconception that they could boil the lead out of the water. You can't do that. Now, imagine if you had $500 a month coming in. You know, that makes it pretty easy to budget to say, okay, I can devote $25 of this money, 5% of this money that's coming in to make sure we have clean water coming out of our pipes. And then there's still enough left to pay for groceries and school and, and maybe invest a little in a small business or something. So that's the easiest way I can look at it, where it gives folks a chance to budget and then they can spend a little bit more and it becomes relief and stimulus at the same time. And that's the best way to revive our economy. Yeah. That's why we're fighting for recurring installments. Yeah. Well, to challenge you a little bit too, and like if you can play devil's advocate, what are some of maybe the cons, the legitimate cons of it, and also like some of the maybe like p political arguments for it. Well, let's see, let's uh, put on my contrarian hat. I know, you know, there's, there is talk about the, the national debt, but again, we only seem to talk about that when it comes to helping people. And, you know, this is when we are, when our neighbor's house is on fire, and we loan them a hose, we don't, stop them and say, hey, I need you, I need to make sure you give me this host back when I'm done. I don't want any burn marks on it. I'm going to charge interest. I want an extra two feet of hose when you're when you're done. You know, we, we give them the hose. And another complaint is about a means test. And they worry that if you if you give stimulus checks to everybody, you're going to be giving it to people who don't need it, of course, rich people. And and that's fine. In the uh, current negotiations, what we're seeing, there's some targeting. It might be the bottom 70%, might be the bottom 90%. You know, most of the public will be getting a stimulus check. But anytime you do a form of targeting, you're going to be excluding some people who need it that you don't intend to exclude. And 
I would argue that it's better to include people who don't need the help who get a little extra than exclude people who need the help. And easiest way to look at that is uh, if the ship is sinking, you don't go around asking people, can you swim before you give them a life vest? You just give everyone a life vest. And, and, and then, you know, if they don't need it, great. But at least we've helped the folks who need it. So uh, those are two of the complaints. And one I've heard a little bit is difficulty at the IRS. And they say something like the IRS won't be able to manage sending out monthly checks. And, and to the credit of the IRS, you know, the, the first check payments were difficult, but they got them out. And then the second ones, they did it a lot more efficiently, it seems like. I think they're getting better at this. But I think it would be pretty tragic if we were determining our economic policy based on what the on the numbers of printers and temps at the IRS. Right. If, if they need a funding boost, if they need to hire 200 temps and, and buy 50 more printers, let's, you know, let's do it. Let's just make sure that they can accommodate the best economic policy. So the, those are the complaints as best as I've heard them. That was fair. Au contraire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I'm definitely well-versed in universal basic income now. I do like just want to also you know, give a little round of applause for this just policy in general and that I'm super happy that it's, you know, being pushed out and the work you guys are doing is amazing. And because I remember just thinking about how much of a visionary Andrew Yang was for proposing it, but that's so interesting too. It's been around for so long. And I think, you know, it's interesting to look at the COVID and 2020 silver linings and, you know, maybe one of those is this idea of direct cash relief and universal basic income and what that can do for people. And it's really exciting. Yeah, it's it's been a tough year for a lot of us. And I mean, to even look at silver linings is, you know, I don't think it, it'll be enough until we can look at 2020 and say, you know, this was a year that we, that a mirror was put up to us and we saw a lot of what was wrong with society a lot, you know, a lot of what went wrong in 2020, but a lot of what was wrong before that too. And then we, and we start to take some serious strides in the right direction. And then I think we can look at this, uh, it's slightly, very slightly more rose into glasses. Totally. Yeah. I agree with that. That's very well said. Well, can you kind of give us all of the places that we can find you? We can find Humanity Forward, where people can get involved, where I can like go and find, you know, my payments from the government, how that all works. So yes, to you definitely go to our website, movehumanityforward.com. And for you and for those of you out there who haven't received your uh, you know, both of your checks from the government, you can check out our relief guide. You might have to scroll down the page a little bit, but it's there. There's a number of resources there to claim your payment. And the IRS is not like some profit-driven credit agency that's like looking for a way to avoid giving you your check. They'll, you know, if you are able to communicate that you haven't gotten it yet, they will get the, uh, that money to you. So, so definitely do that. Follow us on social media. Humanity Forward everywhere. And follow me, Greg Nassi, and you know keep up with our movement. And, and the last thing I'll say is, if you support direct cash relief, reach out to your members of Congress, senators, and a congressperson. You would be surprised how open they might be to this issue. This is not a partisan issue. We've built a real bipartisan coalition in that House bill that was introduced in December. You had conservative Republicans moderate Republicans, 
moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats. You had both heads of the moderate problem solvers caucus, Democrat and Republican, who signed on as co-sponsors. You had the head of the progressive caucus. You had both incoming heads of the of the Congressional Black and Hispanic caucuses. At the time, they were incoming. Now they are the chairs. And you had the, the head of the Democratic caucus chair, which is Hakeem, Representative Hakeem Jeffries. And you know there was balance, there was breath, uh, and there was passion for this brilliant, new, bipartisan, uniquely American idea. So reach out to your representatives. Um, let them know where you stand on this issue. Quick commercial break. All right, guys, we are so excited to introduce you to Soli Sisterhood. It is the cutest, coolest feminist-based shop, and let me tell you, their stuff is amazing, including these really cool new subscription boxes that are launching later this month. So you're going to want to head to solisisterhood.com to, of course, shop everything and anything that your heart desires, which includes, like, the cutest mugs. I already got some. Maddie already got some. Like, you guys are going to be obsessed. But, of course, we want to, like, equip you guys with a discount code. Yes, that's right, a discount code. So, for Girl in the Gov, the podcast listeners, exclusively, we have a 15% off code to use at checkout. So, use Girl and Gov 15 when you go to purchase and get ready to shop until, I don't want to say you drop, but until your card is full, obviously. So, happy shopping. Oof, what a, what a news day. There's a lot of news, a lot to news. What a time to be alive, what a time to live through continually historic events. Yeah, but it's crazy. I feel like it's a lot of news and a lot of like monumental news, but it's not like like the world is ending type news, which is good. Like I feel like that's gotten a little better. Yeah, that's true. Like I do feel like I don't need to think about like contacting Elon and being like, hey, like, do you have any extra seats for like your trip to Mars? But also here's the thing too, we're paying more attention to it now. We're like actually like more in tune. The stuff that maybe in the past I'd be interested in, but I like wouldn't have like caught my attention of like, I should read into this at this exact moment to really know the next steps. Silver lining. We love talking about the silver linings of 2020 and just the shit show we've lived through is that it has taught us a lot of lessons as a society. It has highlighted issues in our society that need to be changed. Now we're paying attention and here we are. We are. And what we're also specifically paying attention to is this $1.9 trillion COVID aid scenario. Oh, we talked about her a few times. Oh, she's popular. She's more popular than freaking Regina George. But obviously, like in Mean Girls, there's a lot of players at hand. So right now, those players are U.S. senators, and they are scurrying, yes, scurrying, to refine this bill to make it how they want it to be and that they can potentially compromise ahead of this vote. So negotiations over this lovely relief bill are going into overdrive this week. So literally, like, when I think of overdrive, I just like feel like I'm on a racetrack. But regardless, this whole situation has begun a debate over what the sweeping legislation will be as a result of this bill. So lawmakers are jockeying around to include pet projects, uh, such as literally broadband connectivity. So lots of things being discussed here, lots of things being considered outside of 
the direct relief, which is those $1,400 checks that everyone's been talking about. So the version of the bill approved by the House would pay for vaccines and medical supplies, send a new round of emergency financial aid to households, small businesses, and state and local governments. It includes that $1,400 direct payment to individuals, $400 per week federal unemployment benefit through August 29th, help for those having difficulty paying rents and home mortgages during the pandemic as well. So the Senate version is likely to include at least one major change, limiting a minimum wage increase to $15 per hour over five years from its current meek $7.25. That's literally not even Chipotle. That's a coffee with almond milk as far as I'm concerned. Late last week, the effort was blocked under special rules designed to ease the passage of this legislation in the Senate. Essentially, you know, the deadline that we're working with is a March deadline. We're already in March, which is crazy. I'm still convinced it's February, but that is not the case nor the reality. So this is something to watch, something to continue to keep an eye on but hopefully this will pass and we have indeed been keeping an eye on it every week (laughs) we've had major updates on it but yeah it passed in the house this weekend honestly i got the news notification so late late night on a saturday they passed that COVID 19 relief bill but yeah now it's in the senate and we'll see what happens but ultimately it's likely gonna pass even if no Republicans support it, which would be crazy. But the good news about it is that 70% of the country supports it, including Republican constituents. So, you know, it's interesting that there is such heavy Republican pushback for something their constituents actually want. To that point though, an interesting strategy that typically those in the majority will go forward with as a new president takes office is even if they might agree or their constituents agree for a piece of legislation, they will vote against it to position the president as partisan. So they want to, from the get-go, make it appear, you know, change those optics to make it look like it's the president that is, or the opposing party that is causing the issue in terms of not meeting them where they sort of are in terms of legislation. So while it seems kind of surprising, like why wouldn't you support what your constituents want there is a strategic reason for doing so because for them it's hopeful to position themselves in a better light down the line yeah it's uh that's politics for you right there that's the prime example of how it works and how that's why we often can't get shit done is because it's rarely actually about constituents and it's more about the political games well Next story, we have U.S. House Democratic lawmakers introducing a wide-ranging climate bill. So exciting stuff, but three Democratic lawmakers in the House of Representatives unveiled a wide-ranging climate bill on Tuesday that embraces President Joe Biden's goals to curb climate change, including decarbonizing the electric grid by 2035. Exciting. But it was introduced by Representatives Frank Pallone, Paul Tonko, and Bobby Rush, truly never heard of any of them before have you no that's what i love about the house is that like there are so many reps in there that like nobody's ever heard of and it's just like cute i'm saying this knowing zero about them right this is a total flash judgment but the name bobby rush is absolutely fantastic iconic i need to speak with his mother immediately (laughs) i'm looking him up let's say hold on representative I want to see what he looks like. I wonder what state he's from, too. Wait, let me guess. Can you give me a region? Midwest. Ohio? Illinois? Yes! Illinois. What's he look like? Look at him. He's a cutie. Let me see. 
Oh my god, he's so cute. Look at his little chin beard. Oh, love it. He looks iconic for sure. I'm obsessed. Bobby Rush. Let's get him on the show. You guys, if anyone knows Bobby Rush or wants to start a petition to get him on this show, please. Please. Okay, no, but back to the story. They are, this bill includes a federal clean electricity standard requiring a percentage of retail power sales to come from sources that produce little to no carbon emissions. And so the Climate Leadership and Environmental Action for Our Nation's Future Act requires 80% clean electricity by 2030 and 100% by 2035. How old am I going to be in 2030? I'm going to be 34. I'm going to be almost 40 in 2035. Wait, how old am I going to be then? I'm going to be like the crypt keeper. I'm going to be 41. You would be 41 when? In In 2035. That's so crazy. Why did my dad last night, I mean, he was giving me shit, but he goes, you're almost 30. I'm like, in two months, I'll be 25 and then I'll be almost 30. Okay, give me at least these two months before I'm 25 to say that. Thank you. If he wants to say that to anyone, he can say it to me because I'm at least closer on this timeline. Well, you're the same age as my sister. And I'm like, you're saying that to me. And he goes, well, actually, she's almost 30. I'm like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) But okay. Anyways, back to our lovely climate bill. So the power would come from sources, including wind, solar. The bill also set uh, a goal of fully decarbonized economy by 2050. So how old will we be in 2050? Maddie, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) 2050, I will be, that is in 30 years. Hold on, I'm bringing my calculator. That's 30. So I will be 54. I will be 54. Wait, 30 plus. In 2050, 27. right? 57. 57? <laughs> no. No. Well, anyways, to wrap up this, this bill, the legislation which um, needs to pass committees, then the full House and Senate, and then be signed by Biden before becoming a law, all of this like climate change jargon we will be covering come april when we have like a full climate month sneak peek spoiler alert but that's an exciting new you know bill on the horizon by bobby rush we learned so many like fun things today that bobby rush is an icon and that we're old once we start to actually clean up this planet we're gonna be like grandma's not even able to enjoy oh my god but it's okay we're doing it for the children right right the children love those things Hmm. but in the meantime little controversy here so the white house plans to withdraw the nomination for director of the office of management and budget as early as well today so according to people familiar with the matter and the i don't know entire world tandon was facing bipartisan opposition from senators due to past comments she made on her twitter feed i just have so many thoughts feelings and emotions on this one So one, if we lived in a normal world, which that's funny, I really do see where people on both sides of the aisle are coming from, where her comments have been inflammatory or demeaning or, you know, cause for concern in terms of her ability to put her opinions aside or color commentary aside to be able to work with people with a range of opinions. I see that. But we did just have Donald Trump as president. We did just have Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court. We have 
so many examples of insane rhetoric used in the past four years. And I'm not saying that that means that we should make that the standard or status quo. But the point being is to hold her to a different standard than we have held a past president really doesn't sit particularly well with me, especially in the comments that I'm aware of. And let's just put it that way. The comments that I'm aware of, and that might not be all, while I do see them to be problematic, I don't see them to be more problematic than some of the others that have been spewed by, I don't know, like I said, Donald Trump. Well, I mean, or think about it's still happening on the other side of, you know, the Ted Cruz's of the world and all of these Republican senators and Congress people who are just destroying people like AOC and saying really nasty things about them all the time. And it's like, it's just, it's kind of a longstanding debate of whether the Democrats are either going to like play dirty with the Republicans and do what they do, or do we, you know, take the high road and like, which we always have done, but has that even been successful? Like, do we hold ourselves to a different standard or do we like get in the mud with the Republicans? It's just like an interesting debate. And I don't know what the answer is, but because I think there's no room for any of it, honestly. But again, if one side is doing it so much, like, and then we get held to the standard of having someone step down because of it. The example of like how Al Franken stepped down like immediately after these accusations and things came out about him. But then we have a Donald Trump in the office who has a dozen plus sexual assault allegations. It's just like, when are we going to play to the same rules? And when, when will that happen? It's just, it's an interesting debate. But at the same time, I don't see the Republicans ever stopping that kind of behavior or holding themselves to a higher standard or the same standard democrats do so do democrats just then do we have to just play dirty with them or like i don't know what the answer is but i know it's it's one of those ones i go back and forth in my head too as to like what's the best strategy i think it it has to be on a case-by-case basis and with the goal of getting to a point where both ends can hopefully be held to a high standard and actually be accountable for that like to your point, would that ever be possible? I really don't know. I hope so, but you know, you know, here's to hoping, I suppose. But I also would say, I think if this were not a woman in this scenario, I also think we'd be dealing with a different situation. I agree, and a woman of color. Yeah, like I, I think that off the bat has already, you know, turned me off from this particular situation and makes me think this is this is the time for defense because if this were a standard old white guy in this situation we wouldn't this wouldn't even be on the news you wouldn't be hearing about it and he would already be passed in in his position so i i just yeah it's kind of disappointing but again like i just i bottom line i I, again i don't think there's any room for any of that kind of like hate and name calling and any of that in politics but obviously it happens and it's just a matter of how how we deal with it collectively though like we need to all play by the same rules like that's just how it should go but our rant aside i guess we'll move on to the next story before you know our blood boils too much so the u.s supreme court is in the news because there are some signals of kind of some more leeway for voting restrictions in different states so What that means is that the U.S. Supreme Court justices on Tuesday appeared inclined that they would uphold two Republican-backed voting restrictions in Arizona in a case that would further basically hobble and 
you know, dismantle in ways the Voting Rights Act, which is, again, like a landmark 1965 federal law that prohibits racial discrimination in voting. Basically, during nearly two hours of oral arguments, the court's conservative judges who hold a six to three majority asked Questions indicating that they could issue a ruling that would make it harder to prove violations of the Voting Rights Act. But the important voting rights case was heard at a time when Republicans in numerous states are pursuing new restrictions after the former guy made false claims of widespread fraud in last year's election after he lost. So Republican proponents of Arizona's restrictions cite the need to combat voting fraud all of a sudden, and now they're coming after the Voting Rights Act to do that. And it's in the Supreme Court, which we know is a six to three conservative majority. The way things are going right now, it's not looking good. Whatever happens here could give leeway to potentially some racially motivated voting restrictions. Literally, it's insane. I think this is a really good platform for understanding why people get so amped about Supreme Court nominees and the control via the, you know, who whatever president is in power at the time that uh, a switch needs to be made or has to be made. And, you know, we were all worried, right, when RBG passed away this past fall. And this is a great example of why we were worried, right? Obviously, the initial thing, you know, all comes down to Roe v. Wade. That's the hot button issue that we always think of with the Supreme Court, and rightfully so, but there are other issues, and this is an issue that is particularly pertinent as it relates to the Supreme Court right now, and I think this is only going to continue. We are seeing so much of this action in Georgia and in Arizona. It's so racist. It's so backwards. I'm sorry, but this is the United States of America, and the whole idea is that everyone has the right to an opinion and choose their voice. If that's the case, then I really don't see why you would be trying to limit people's ability to vote and therefore use their opinion and voice. No, it's super disheartening and scary. But if anything, it should just be a reminder that the fight don't stop even when, you know, your guy wins and gets to the White House. I am already thinking about the next election and like, how are we going to play this? Like, how are we going to get people out again? Like, we need to make sure we keep our foot on the gas and stay motivated civically to get out and vote but i'm gonna leave this next story to you because you're the new yorker you did have a crush on this guy i never said that i picked the good ones let me clarify and you know what like if any of my exes listen like yeah that's a shout out to you you all sucked look Every breakup has its traumas and its dramas. As long as you're no longer quomosexual, then we're good. No. No, I think, you know, you know the ick? Yeah. Oh, this major ick moment for a lot of people, too. A lot of people are going through it, going through this breakup. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a breakup. I, I've ordered myself a burrito to wallow in, so we're okay, but... Just, you know, for everyone that understands what happened in this breakup. So basically, New York 
governor. Andrew Cuomo has avoided public appearances for days. And why, you ask? It's because some of his own party are asking for him to resign over sexual harassment allegations. Governor hasn't taken questions from reporters since February 19th, which was a lovely old press briefing, which is an unusually long gap for the Democrat whose daily televised updates on the coronavirus pandemic were a must-see situation last spring, which, like, let me tell you, like, I was guilty. The calls for him to resign intensified late Monday. So this happened after a third woman accused him of offensive behavior, saying he touched her face and back and asked her to kiss her moments after they met at a wedding reception. So obviously, like we said, his support has really plummeted, and this is because not just the sexual harassment allegations, which, like, I mean, hello, that's enough as it is, but cherry on top, because these allegations also come on top of accusations that he covered up the true death toll that happened to nursing home residents during coronavirus, which is still going on, but early on, those numbers. If you are <clears throat> have seen kind of this backlash for Cuomo on the nursing home situation, if you listen to The Daily has a good episode about it, where they actually they did two episodes about it um, and explain it really well, and they are episodes from February 23rd and 24th. And honestly, like while we're in like a plugging mode, I also would like to plug Senator Biagi's Instagram Live, which is now on IGTV with Katie Couric. It is fire because obviously Senator Biagi is a queen and kills it. Yeah, and Senator Biagi told us, and this was back in the middle of your crush, she said, Andrew Cuomo is a dick. I don't did she say dick? I don't know, but she, but basically dick. And I think we both sat there like, don't talk about him like that. But like she knew and she told us and like more reasons why, you know, we all need to believe women more because Jesus Christ, she was right. And like not to mention like sexual harassment, nursing home scandal, plus a lot of allegations of him just literally being a dick have come out of like he also is verbally abusive and verbally harasses people that he works with you know uh, state senators assembly members crazy but again like what we talked about on senator biagi's episode was holding politicians accountable even of your own party and so it's just an important moment to do that does everyone have their barf bags ready okay now that everyone is prepared i'm so glad that we like made a moment for you guys okay this is what he said, I quote, I now understand that my interactions may have been insensitive or too personal, and that some of my comments, given my position, made others feel in ways I never intended. I acknowledge some of the things I've said have been misinterpreted as an unwanted flirtation. To the extent anyone felt that way, I'm truly sorry about that. Cuomo's statement drew immediate backlash from critics who said he was throwing responsibility onto the women by saying they perceived his statements wrongly. Ah, a classic. I mean, shut up i can't like okay first of all you grab someone's face and kiss them don't touch people without their consent period but also like it's people he's worked with young women he's asked if they've ever slept with older men ask them different questions about the kind of sex they have in what world would you think that's okay and then we got some half-ass apologies like this it's not even an apology it's like him deflecting and not owning up to it at all, so. Yeah, to note guys, there also is an independent investigation going on through the attorney general, so we will see what that reveals. Well, we will definitely be keeping you guys updated on this Cuomo situation. But 
Speaking of controversy, we got another one. Oh, I, ooh, this one. This one, this also came out today, and the headline is that Texas governor lifts state mask mandate and other business restrictions. So the governor of Texas lifted most of the state's coronavirus pandemic restrictions, allowing businesses to reopen at full capacity as of next week and telling residents that masks were no longer required. So the move made by Governor Greg Abbott, who has been in the news as of late, especially with his reaction to Texas freezing over. But now, again, he marks you know the furthest any U.S. state has so far gone to roll back harsh restrictions on businesses and residents in COVID. So he said, it's now time to open Texas 100%. <laughs> Abbott said it in an afternoon news briefing. And the full lifting of the mandates will take effect on March 1, he said. Abbott's order comes as COVID-19 infections have plummeted in recent weeks across much of the world, including the United States. So congrats, Texas. You're COVID-free. That's crazy. No way. You have zero cases. Oh, my God. Oh, wait. You have more cases than even California does now. So like you guys just had a freaking environmental disaster strike people are still recovering from that people will still be recovering from that for months so the risk is even higher because we now have people in shelters we now have people that are trying to work together to have safe housing and whatnot so there's even more opportunity for this thing to spread and now you're rolling everything back i mean i'm I'm curious what the rationale is. They're still having over 8,000 cases, which again is like significantly lower than where we all were at as a country like last month. Like for example, like in California last month, we were having 50,000 cases and now we're down to 2,000 cases, which is like an awesome, crazy drop. It's great news. But like we are by no means like ready to open 100%. And I think only like around 6% of Texas is even vaccinated right now. So it, it just, I'm curious, like, what happened to him today where he was like, let's open 100%. <laughs> like, what did he take that made him want to do that? If you do want to open things up more and you feel Texas has the capacity to do that, I don't fully know the situation in Texas to be like, yeah, you can't open this, this, and this up. But the mask mandate, it's like that's the easiest part of this whole pandemic that just like for some reason people can't get through their heads. Even if you could open things up 100% capacity, you should still be wearing masks. Like it's such an easy thing to do to prevent the spread. It's bananas. And don't get me wrong. I hate wearing a mask. It sucks. I agree. It sucks. But like it's easy and it saves people's lives. So just do it. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Do you look cool doing it? No. Does it save your life? If you like literally end up like flipping on black ice? Yes. Just do it. Yeah. That's it for this week. Those are your top stories. But we have an action item for you this week and beyond. Um, and it is the gap project. So COVID-19 has impacted the availability of pre-college and extracurricular opportunities, as well as, you know, just the traditional structure of education. The majority of young people express strong interest in civic participation and politics, yet historically young people have lower voter engagement. So Gen Z and millennials are the most diverse generation in America, yet they are not represented by current elected officials. 
So the GAP Project is a data-driven grassroots consortium connecting young people with political campaigns on the local, state, and national level. They have developed an intuitive quiz for young people and campaigns that assess each party's values, interests, and demographics and creates a match based on the algorithm. So the GAP Project places young people as remote volunteers on political campaigns of all kinds across the United States, and they mobilize Gen Z and millennials to engage with the political system, take constructive action to get their voices heard and most importantly to vote so the gap project is reshaping a representative and equitable america and providing gen z and millennials with a pipeline into politics we absolutely love it we'll put all the information um, of how to find them in the episode description so go check them out and learn all about the gap project well the other thing we wanted to highlight was just the increase of anti-asian you know, sentiments and hate crimes that have really skyrocketed, especially during this pandemic. And we have a post on the Girl on the Gov Instagram that gives you not only resources to help, but like resources to learn more, because that's also a powerful tool is knowledge, like learn about what's happening and how to deal with it and how to possibly step in, how to take action. So that is all on the Girl on the Gov Instagram. And so go check it out. We provide some awesome resources there to get involved and learn more about what's going on. So yeah, but that is it for this week. Subscribe, rate, review, follow us on social media, go watch our reels, like send them to people, like DM us with questions too. And as always, we'll be back next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.